Uh, if you guys have your, your Bibles, why don't you open with me to, to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, we will be uh, looking at the final verse this morning. As you're, as you're turning there, uh, there, there have been many famous letters written from, from prison. Uh, one of the, the more famous letters from prison was written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, it is known as the letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, Dr. King had been imprisoned uh, as a participant in a nonviolent uh, demonstration uh, against segregation. Uh, and while he was uh, in prison there, uh, he, he wrote a, uh, a letter longhand in response to a public statement that had been made by uh, eight uh, white religious leaders uh, in the South. Uh, and anytime you write a letter from jail, it's got to be important. You don't just uh, come uh, to prison with with writing utensils and paper. Uh, it takes time and energy to procure those things. So any letter from jail is going to be important. And uh, Dr. King begins his letter by acknowledging the significance of what he was about to write and the significance of this situation. He says this. This is how he begins his letter. He says, While confined here in the Birmingham jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth... I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. So Dr. King wrote this letter because he felt that it was greatly needed, that the situation warranted a response, uh, and that his work was being criticized and he needed to, to, to answer, to give an explanation for why he wanted to continue to oppose segregation. And in this letter, which is approximately Six pages typed, single space. So think about that. He wrote this in a jail cell by hand, and if you typed it up, it's six pages long. I've never written a letter that long in my entire life. So he, he spent some time and energy uh, to respond to to these men. Now, and in this letter, he's he's arguing in the big picture that there is a, a moral responsibility uh, to break an unjust law, to break a law that does not correspond to the moral law of God. But in breaking that law, we, we take direct action through peaceful protest rather than uh, through anger and violence. And, and rather than waiting patiently just for the courts to bring about justice, he believed in, in peaceful protest uh, through uh, nonviolent uh, means. And, and so ultimately what we, what we read in this letter uh, is a powerful and, and potent explanation for his beliefs. And he's writing to, to defend what he has been teaching, what his life has been about, uh, to defend it against other ideas that have been attacking his own. Uh, but Dr. King was not, not the first man to write a letter from prison to defend his ideas. It wasn't the first person to uh, to write uh, to others because he was concerned by by this uh, refutation of error. He says, "Hey, I, there's a, these opposing ideas that I need to address." Uh, it's a it's a common idea concept, uh, and Dr. King wasn't the first one. But I would say you can look further back in history. Almost 1,900 years prior to Dr. King's letter, we see the Apostle Paul in prison writing for similar reasons. Uh, because there in the Colossian church, there had men who came in. And to begin, began to, to oppose what, what Paul had taught to Epaphras, the church planter, and what Epaphras had, had founded the church in Colossae, uh, on doctrinally was now being attacked. Uh, and so Paul's saying, now I need to write, I need to, uh, to go to battle in, in this confrontation of ideas, uh, with these false teachers in Colossae. And this letter that the apostle Paul wrote is of far greater significance than what Dr. Martin Luther King wrote in that Birmingham jail. Uh, and so what I'd like to do this morning is, is conclude our, our study. Uh, we made it to the end. We're in the last verse of Colossians. Uh, and what I want to do is, is take a look at this last verse and then also to, to, to soar up into the air and take a bird's eye view of what, what Paul has written. It's helpful to, when we look at Dr. King's letter, it's helpful to know where he was when he wrote it, why he was writing it, what's the, the greater context. And I want to do some of the same things in, in looking at uh, this letter to the Colossians. Okay, let, let's soar up, let's, let's zoom out and see what Paul is writing and why he is writing it. 
Uh, and what I want to look at today is in verse 18 is that we'll, we'll see that Paul concludes this letter in this verse with, with three simple statements. He gives uh, his personal greeting, he gives a, a final prayer request, and then he gives uh, a closing blessing. Uh, and then that will help us to, to wrap things up and look at the big picture of Colossians as well. So but let's first look at, at verse 18. Read along with me in verse 18 as... As Paul concludes this letter, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So he gives these these three simple statements. And his first one just says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And, And so what we see is Paul actually didn't pen the letter. He wasn't the one to put pen to paper. And you say, well, wait a second. Chapter 1, verse 1, whose name is is given to us as the author, Paul. So how is, how is Paul the author but not the author? Well, it's, it's, it's really simple. What was common at that point in time was for somebody to dictate a letter to a scribe because uh, there were trained scribes who would be able to write really neatly, which would disqualify many of us. Uh, they had to write really neatly and really uh, tiny to be able to save uh, space on valuable papyrus. These sheets of papyrus were expensive, difficult to come by. So if you have a given amount of space, uh, you have to write really small and be able to fit it all in. And so what Paul would do is he would dictate the letter to a scribe. That scribe could have been Timothy. It's un- unsure who uh, this person was. And the fancy name for this person, uh, this scribe, would be an amanuensis. Uh, and this was a common practice of Paul, in the same way that it's a common practice for an executive today uh, to dictate a, a letter to a secretary uh, for that person to go type it up and then send it back to to the executive, and the executive will, will, will proofread it, say, okay, and then what, what does the executive do at the bottom of that letter? He would sign it, and that's similar to what Paul is doing here. He would have dictated it, and then at the very end of the letter, what does he do? He, he signs off on it and says, hey, I'm, I'm going to write this in my own hand to, number one, to authenticate it to show that this really comes from him. And this was a common practice, and we see this also in Romans 16.22, where he used uh, a man named Tertius uh, to write the letter for him, and uh, or to he dictated to Tertius. And then also in, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And he says, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, it is the way I write. And so what he's saying is, hey, you can tell if this letter came from Paul because it has his signature at the bottom. And it also helped to, uh, it helped to authenticate it. And then secondly, to, to battle against spurious letters, the letters that didn't really come from Paul that were being circulated in the churches. And these letters were mentioned in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... And are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And he's writing to the Thessalonians because they, they thought they had missed the rapture. They thought they had missed the day of the Lord. And Paul's like, no, no, calm down. It's okay. And no matter what you've heard, it hasn't happened. Uh, and let me let me teach you about that. So, number one, Paul authenticates the letter with his signature. And then secondly, he, he gives this really simple prayer request. He, he just says, remember my chains. Is, Paul was so humble, he didn't make a big deal out of being in prison. And most of us, if we were in prison for the gospel, we would be, you know, announcing it, uh, proclaiming it everywhere. But he, he only mentions it actually twice in this letter. Uh, once in, in chapter 4, verse uh, 3, uh, it says, On account of which I am in prison, and then again here. And that's all he says about being imprisoned in Rome for, for what would be a total of two years. He just says, remember my chains. It's a very, very simple uh, prayer request, just saying, hey, when remember that I am imprisoned for the gospel, that because of my gospel proclamation I have been uh, placed under house arrest, and he is literally chained to a Roman guard. And so as he, as he signs the letter, what would have been clinking? The very chain on his wrist. He says, hey, remember my chains and, and pray for my release. Now that is a simple, simple request and it's, it's a humble request. And think about this. An, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's how Paul introduces himself in chapter one. An apostle of Jesus Christ is, is asking God's people to pray for him again. Just a mark of Paul's humility. Uh, that he would make such a request and ask to be remembered in prayer. 
So he makes this uh, this authentication of the letter with his signature. He, he makes this simple prayer request. And then he just has this closing blessing. He says, grace be with you. And this is Paul's typical way of signing each and every one of his letters. Uh, every one of his letters in the New Testament ends with some type of uh, closing blessing that, that amounts to something like this. Sometimes it's grace be with you all or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, sometimes it's, it's to that effect, but he always ends his letters with this simple statement. All except one, Romans, which has a longer benediction and a longer prayer in it. And And even though it's such a simple blessing that he pronounces at the end that we shouldn't just immediately just skip over it uh, the brevity of it shouldn't diminish its significance one one pastor says this that even though it's it's a brief benediction it is rich in meaning for grace is the greatest and most basic of all blessings it is god's favor in christ to the undeserving transforming their hearts and lives and leading them on to glory Paul knows that if this church of Colossae is going to grow in their faith, what, it's, what, is, what needs to be upon them is the grace of God. So he says, may the grace of God be with you and, and upon you. And with, with those words, those three simple statements, Paul concludes this letter. And we, you know, we've, we've been in this, this letter for, for quite some time. Those of us who were gathering in our living room a year ago uh, when we started this, uh, 39 messages in Colossians and a little over a year of studying it. And, and now we have concluded. I think at this time, uh, it's, it's helpful to say, what's the big picture? Okay, if we had to explain the theme of Colossians, just as we, we just looked at 1 Corinthians and, and the theme of 1 Corinthians is, is Paul correcting that church, uh, for things that were going on and for areas where they had questions. The theme of Colossians, if we had to come up with one, would be, I would say the believer's union with Christ. Now, and I want to want to talk about that. We're going to take a look at it and, and kind of march through the letter uh, briefly. Again, this is going to be uh, a soaring over and a bird's eye view. We've taken time to, to to get down on the ground level this past year and to walk through Colossians, and now we're going to do a a brief soaring over of uh, this entire letter. Uh, and and I would propose this, and this is on your your outline there. Uh, of if we had to explain what this letter was about in a single statement, this is what I would say. You see it there on, on your paper. It says the purpose is to teach the believers in Colossae about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and their union with him in order to help them identify false teaching and to exhort them to have their conduct flow from their union with Christ. Okay, so let's let's take a run through this, and what you can do is follow along on that little chart on the bottom of your of your paper. There. That's what we will be we will be walking through. There, there's four big sections in the letter that I would say. Number one is the exalted Messiah. Number two would be the, the suffering apostle. Third would be the the pressured Colossians, and then number four would be the resurrected life. So look with me first at the this exalted Messiah from chapter one. Uh, verse 1 through 23. And I would say, turn there with me uh, in your Bible. So Paul's never been to Colossae. He's Epaphras, the church planter, comes to Rome because false teaching has entered into the church. And so uh, Paul from Rome is writing this letter. And the first 14 verses are saying, hey, thanks for, I'm thankful for you. Uh, I'm praying for you. And then he immediately jumps into who Jesus is. Uh, and in verse 15, he says, let me, let me tell you who Christ is. The Colossians had, uh, or these false teachers that had come into Colossae were saying things like this. They were saying, Jesus is, uh, from God, but he is not God. That, that he is, he's good, but he is not the creator. They also said this, that Jesus didn't have a physical body. You're like, whoa. See, what they were saying is they were promoting this philosophy that anything that was physical was evil. And anything that was spiritual was good. So how can Jesus, who is good, have a physical body? So they began to say that Jesus only came in spirit, which is as we read through the this book of Colossae, or the Colossians, Paul's repeatedly going to say that Jesus came in the flesh, uh, that he was here bodily. Uh, so he's going to be addressing these things, but but look with me in, in, in verse 15 uh, through 20 of Colossians 1. He, he's going to exalt Christ and to, to show the Colossians who Jesus truly is. And then he's going to 
say what Jesus has accomplished. But look, look first at verse 15. It says, He, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is that is who Jesus is. He says he is the preeminent one, the one who has created and sustains everything. And those little words of all things were created for him. This gives us the reason for our existence. We exist to make ourselves happy, to, to be uh, uh, to experience pleasure and joy all the time. No, we we exist to glorify our Creator. We exist to glorify. Christ. So this is who Jesus is. And then look, then look with me in verse 21. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body, in the, his body of the, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which, that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, from the very beginning, Paul understands that he has to correct and get straight for the Colossians who Jesus is and what he has done. And this is so important. You guys know that, uh, that Muslims... Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses all believe in Jesus. You realize that? They all believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. They believe in a Jesus of their own making or a Jesus that, that fits in with things that they already want to believe and understand. Of Hey, Muslims would, would say that Jesus is the healing prophet and the sinless prophet, but they wouldn't say that He's the Son of God who has created all things. What you believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in Him. If you believe in a fictional Jesus, that doesn't help you at all. We're called to believe in Jesus as He has revealed Himself in His written Word. Many Americans do the same thing as Muslims, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses. We, we claim to, to follow Christ, and yet we, it's a God of our own making. You know, many, many would say that, that Jesus is a good moral teacher... That he's someone that we can learn from, but they don't believe that he is Lord. That, that he is God, that he is worthy of our submission to him. Say, so, hey, we can learn some things from him, but he doesn't, he doesn't demand my complete obedience and allegiance. Right? There are many in our country who would say that. Yeah, there's things I can learn from Jesus, but I don't need to submit to everything that he said. Still others would say that, uh, that Jesus was, all love, all the time. And you're like, yes, that's that's true. But Jesus also dealt with sins. Many people today don't want to have a Jesus who deals with sin, who confronts sin. And yet when Jesus began his ministry, what was his message? What did he go around Israel proclaiming? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that word repent mean? Turn from your sin and turn to God, stop what you were doing. You were running away from God. Now turn it to Him in faith. That is that is the fundamental message of Christ. One uh, Christian apologist has said that a belief in a false Jesus is just as dangerous as no Jesus at all because faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. So we have to ask ourselves, do we... Do we truly believe the Jesus of the Bible? And don't rush to answer that. Don't immediately say in your mind and in your heart, yes, I believe that. We will truly come to grips with whether or not we believe in Jesus if Jesus doesn't always line up with what we want Him to be. If Jesus always lines up with what we want Him to be, we've become 
God. We need to be at times where we're like, I don't understand why Jesus does this. How can he say that? How can, how can the rich young ruler come up to him and say, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, be perfect. Well, what, what is Jesus trying to do there? You're like, Jesus, you missed a great gospel opportunity there. You really blew that one. No, Jesus, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He says, this man needs to understand that he hasn't got everything perfect, that he hasn't obeyed God perfectly. He needs to understand his sinfulness and, and deal with the idols in his heart if he's truly going to inherit eternal life. And that's what Jesus is trying to get him to see. We need to be confused and, and concerned about Jesus at times so he doesn't always fit into what we want him to do and be. And we need to, to turn to God's word to understand who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Do we believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Do you believe in the Jesus of Colossians 1, 15 through 20? Because if you do, you should live your life according to what? Not for yourself, but for Him. Because if you believe that you've been created for Him, that's going to impact the way that you live. That gives purpose and meaning to all of our lives. Do you believe in the Jesus of Scripture? Do you believe that He now calls all of us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him? Do you believe in the Jesus who now offers reconciliation and peace with God the Father whom we have sinned against? That's, that's verses 21 to 23. Do we believe in that reconciliation uh, that, that is possible and that it's only possible through His Son, Jesus Christ? That's the beginning point of what Paul wants the Colossians to understand. That's the beginning point of what our understanding needs to be of this letter. This letter calls us to submit to and believe in Christ. That He is supreme over everyone and everything. Paul lays out that as the groundwork. And then in chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, he says, hey, this is how the supremacy of Christ has impacted me. That's what Paul is going to say. Uh, This is how uh, Christ being supreme over everything and preeminent and, and worth everything in his life, this is how it's made an impact upon Paul. And it's made a dramatic impact. Just look at verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. So wait, that's mind-blowing. How do you rejoice in suffering? Well, only in Christ. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, hey, I'm glad to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of uh, the church. For the sake of the Colossians, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for whose sake? It says, for your sake. Paul is suffering for their benefit. He talks about that and what a commitment he has to serving Christ. And then verse 25 to 27. These are going to be critical verses for our understanding of the rest of the letter. Paul explains his ministry. Read along with me. Says, of which I became a minister, speaking of the church, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Paul's been given this message to proclaim. It's been, it's been hidden. It's been veiled in mystery for a time. And now Paul has the, the command and the stewardship to go and proclaim it to the Gentiles. And that becomes his mission. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And because his desire was to see every man complete, to see every man mature, that led him to be concerned for people he had never even met. He'd never met the Colossians. He'd never met uh, the church in Laodicea or in Hierapolis, who we'll see later on in the letter. But let's continue reading in chapter 2, verse 1. For I know, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul had a ministry that was given to him by the Lord. So he labored diligently in that ministry, and that ministry led him to be concerned for people he had never even met. He wanted to see them know Christ as supreme, to know Christ as the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. But let's jump back over to verses 25 to 27 of of understanding what Paul says here is foundational to everything else in the letter. He he makes this this series of uh, statements of, of one thing being equal to another. So in verse 25, uh, the ministry, the this, this stewardship from God that was given to him was to make the Word of God fully known. He says this Word of God is equal to the mystery at the beginning of verse 26. This mystery, hidden for ages and generations, and then look at the end of verse 27. This mystery, which is what? The mystery is Christ in you. And, and that mystery, that mystery of Christ being in the believer is equal to what at the end of verse 27? It is the hope of glory. Our hope of future glory is, is linked to Christ being in us, our uh, union with Christ. But, but what does that mean? That's kind of a fuzzy term, right? What does it mean for us to be united with Christ, for, for Him to be in us and us to be in Him? Well, think about it this way. The, the Pacific Ocean is the largest body of water on the earth. It extends from the Arctic to the Antarctic, from Asia and Australia uh, to uh, America to uh, the north uh, and, and south. Uh, it, it, it covers more area than all of the earth's land mass put together. That's how big the Pacific Ocean is. So let's imagine we take a boat, we go out into the Pacific Ocean, uh, and we're there. Everywhere that we look, there's, there's no land. We are just completely encompassed with water around us. Okay, the Pacific Ocean is also so deep, uh, the Mariana Trench, the lowest point in Earth, is 35,000 feet down, uh, which means you could take Mount M for Everest and put it upside down uh, on, the, on the bottom of that trench and still have a mile of water above it. So we're on this ocean. Uh, it, it, it's so deep we can't even fathom it. It's so wide we can't see anything else. And we're in this boat. Suddenly we decide, for some reason... For the sake of this illustration, we want to jump into the water. Uh, and now, uh, this, this vast, almost infinite Pacific Ocean, we are now in the Pacific. That, that is what it looks like for us to be in Christ. It's like we are placed spiritually into Him, the infinite Pacific, and now this infinite Christ. Yeah, that, that is what we see. It's a small but imperfect picture of our union with Christ. So now we are, we're in the water, we're in the Pacific, and then we open our mouths. What happens? Now the Pacific is in us. <laughs> uh, and some of you may be saying, well, if the Pacific is in me, I'm drowning <laughs> and I'm dying. But you know what? That fits perfectly with our illustration because in our union with Christ, it says that we have died with Him. That he, we are now in Him. He is now in us. And we participate in all that He did in His life, death, and resurrection. That is what it means for us to be in Christ. Our lives are now His, and His life is now ours. And we need to know and understand that. We need to believe that, to be convinced of that, that our our identity is no longer in other things. It's no longer in our job, in our our skills, our hobbies, uh, in anything else. Our identity is now in Christ. And that's going to be foundational to what Paul is going to, to say from this point on in the letter. And this isn't just, this isn't just doctrinal theology. It's not just theology that's, that's up in the sky and we can point to it. This is, this is devotional and this is practical. And this is what Paul is going to unfold from this point on. Look with me at, at this next portion. When he begins to write to the pressured Colossians, they're, pre- they're facing this pressure uh, and this conflict and false teaching within the church. And he begins to address it beginning in chapter 2, verse 6. And, he, and he's going to, to give them an, an overarching principle. He says, hey, just as you received Christ, now you're supposed to live in Him. 
when I was in college, this, this verse had a tremendous impact upon my life. Because I began to see uh, that I had believed in Jesus, but I wasn't actually allowing my faith in Jesus to change the way that I was living. And I became deeply convicted by that. Say, hey, you know what? I've received him, but I'm not walking in him. But look at what Paul says here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The idea of walk is the idea of living your daily conduct. Walk, live in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Hey, Colossians, you received Christ. Now continue in him. Don't be taken away by these false teachers. That's what he's saying. Continue in Christ just as you were taught. Then he's going to to give a, a big command in verse 8. And it's, again, to, to combat this philosophy that was present within the church. He says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's a big statement. If we truly understand what he's saying, there's, hey, everything else, anything that is not according to Christ, don't let it influence you. Don't be taken captive by that. That, that word for captive, that's, a, that's war language. That was fighting words, Paul. So yeah, these ideas are trying to take you captive. They're trying to imprison you, to take you away from Christ. And, and what's amazing is, uh, what do kids always ask? Why? So, Paul, if you're going to make that big of a request and say, disregard every human teaching, disregard everything else except what is according to Christ, that's a big statement. We can ask, why? Paul, convince me. Why should I do that? Why should I disregard all of man's knowledge and understanding and, and base my life solely upon Christ, who he is and what he's done? Well, he answers that in verses 9 to 15. And so we're going to read this. And, and as we read this, notice how many times he refers back to the believer's union with Christ. Notice how many times he says, we are in him or we have done something with him. Notice this. Read along with me. He says, for in him, there's one, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I'm sorry. That's not referring to our union with Christ. That's referring to who Jesus is. So for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. First reason we should base our lives completely upon Christ because he's God fully and completely. And you have been filled in him. There's number one. Who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also, there's number two, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him, three, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, four, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. There's five. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, them in Him. What's the reason that we should make Christ the foundation for our thinking and the measuring stick by which we evaluate every other idea? Because He's God and because of all of those things that we have participated in with Him and in Him. And that He has conquered every ruler, every spiritual power and authority, uh, every demon, Satan and all of his underlings, Christ has defeated at the cross and overcome. So don't return to those things. That's, that's the foundation for why we should make Christ our everything in our thinking. And what's the basis of that is our union with Him because we are this way in Christ. And then from there, in verses 16 through 23, He applies our union with Christ. He applies this truth to the false teaching that the church is facing. And he's going to address three things. Ritualism, in verses 16 and 17, the idea of, uh, of loving, uh, the sub, or shadows instead of substance. And people fall in love with following these rituals, doing certain things, uh, and say, hey, when you, when we do that, 
uh, we're worshiping the, the, the shadows of things. Those rituals are intended to point us towards Christ. So don't worship the shadow when we have the substance of Jesus. Then he's going to address mysticism in verses 18 and 19. There were these, these people in the church saying they had new visions, new revelation from Jesus. They had a special hidden knowledge that everybody else needed if they were going to be able to overcome uh, and be saved. And he says, no, don't, don't worship uh, mediation, the idea of constant communication between God and you through special visions. Don't worship mediation, worship the mediator. And he points to these people that, that say that they're constantly having these visions and new revelation and he says, in actuality, they are, they're not connected to the head. Look at, look at verse 19. And speaking of these false teachers, and not holding fast to the head. They're not united with Christ. You are. So maintain your steadfastness and devotion to Him. Worship the mediator, not the idea of constant mediation. And then in verses 20 through 23, He's going to confront asceticism or legalism or the idea of you can earn your salvation. You can trust in your own works to save you rather than in the work of Christ. So let's, let's look at those verses because what's going to come back around is, again, our union with Christ. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. He says, hey, you died to all of those things. Why would you continue to submit to them? When, when someone dies, are they still subject to the laws of the land? If I were to die right now, what laws would I no longer be subject to? Yeah, the city of Meridian, the state of Idaho, the United States. If I'm dead, those laws don't apply to me anymore. That's what Paul's saying. So if you died to those principles, why do you still go back and submit to them? You're dead to those. Don't, don't follow them. Don't, don't see that, or don't think that they can save you. Look at what he, as he continues in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is why New Year's resolutions always fail, right? Just, hey, I'm, I'm going to try harder this year. Is anyone still continuing their New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's not how transformation occurs. I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to make these rules and guidelines for myself, and then I'm just going to abide by them. No. Uh, it's the Spirit working through us and in us. It's a result of our union with Christ that we can be changed and transformed. Outward rules never change hearts. Just think about that, parents. When you give your child a rule, does that rule change their heart? They're like, yes, mother, father, I now understand all that you desire for me to do and be and aspire to. It's like, no. They now have a rule. It doesn't change their heart. It gives them a guideline. It, it, it makes a fence, but it doesn't change who they are. And that's what Paul is saying. If you've died to the world and its teaching and the world and its rules, don't go back and submit to them. And what we need to understand is how the world is trying to teach us. Uh, the false teaching is coming at us so quickly all the time. And the gospel, what we read uh, in, in 9 through 15, we need to, to meditate upon those things. We need to meditate on, on all that we are in Christ. Well, we have been crucified uh, with Him, risen with Him. We are now in Him. And that, that verse 10, and you have been filled in Him. The idea is you have been made complete in Him. We need to focus on that and understand that and the implication for our lives. And then also be on guard against all of these other worldviews. What he says in verse 8 of those philosophies. Any, any way that is... Ex- as contrary to Christ, we need to be on guard against it. Because it's a battle of ideas. And what are those ideas trying to do? Take us captive. We need to be aware. We need to be people of the book. We need to, to study God's word, to, uh, to look to it rather than to ourselves when we need guidance. There's a passage in Isaiah, uh, chapter 8, where Isaiah is speaking to the people and, and they were tempted to go and speak to uh, these, these mystics, people who could you know, speak to the dead. 
Uh, and Isaiah says this, he says, and, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And then verse 20 says, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What he's saying is, hey, go to the word. Uh, and when we when we're presented with ideas, go to the scripture, go to the testimony, and see if it lines up with what we are to believe. And if it doesn't, then cast it aside. That is what call, Paul is also calling them to here to for us to be built upon the word of Christ, because in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and Paul has been building layer upon layer of theology and doctrine thus far. In, in this letter, he shows us the height of our salvation, but he doesn't stay up there. See, chapter 3, 1, through the end of the book, he takes us from the, this really high theology to now he takes us down to the ground and he shows us where the rubber meets the road. And he gives us in, in chapter 3, verse 1, as he begins to lay out, so we have been raised with Christ, this is what we now need to do. Look with me at chapter 3. Because if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He gives two overarching commands here that the Colossians are to follow. What are they? He says, seek and set your minds. Those are the two imperatives. That's what they are to do. And those are the overarching things. Hey, set your minds and your hearts upon the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why should we do that? Again, he points to our union with Christ. Because Christ is where? He's not here on the earth. He's in heaven. That's where we should set our affections towards him. And he says, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, we in Him, Him in us. That is what we see. That is the motivation for our Christian life. Understanding our union with Christ, with all of its glory, with all of its beauty. And then in chapter 3, for the remainder, Paul, Paul gets really specific. We, we don't have time to, to read it all, but he says, hey, you need to stop doing this. Put this to death, verse 5. Start doing this. Put this on, verse 12. And then he starts to meddle in verse 18. Because what's the heading there? Christian households. He starts to say, husbands, wives, this is how you need to interact with each other. Fathers and children, this is how you need to act with each other. And then he says, slaves and masters, this is how you need to interact with each other. And ultimately, verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Of this idea of everything that we do in this life should be focused upon who? Christ. I came across uh, an article about a, a football player that I had, I had known his name when he was playing in high school or in college in the NFL. His name is Jake Locker. Uh, you may have heard of him. He was a high school football star in the Seattle area. Uh, he was the quarterback for the University of Washington, and then he was drafted uh, by the Tennessee Titans uh, in 2011. Uh, and it's a very intriguing story. Sports Illustrated did this article on him, and they talked about how Jake Locker became a believer in 2012. And that gradually, over the next couple of years, he began to see that his, his desire to play football was diminishing. And he had an ever-increasing desire to, to serve Christ, uh, to, to be the husband and father that God was calling him to be, and then to devote his life to, to simple living and serving Christ. Think about it. This man had it all. Millions of dollars. Uh, you know, everything that, that you could ask for as a guy. And he, and he left it all. He, he could have continued to make all of that money. But, but this is what it said. And this is how that, that article in Sports Illustrated concludes. He says, sure, he loved football. But he loved Jesus more. Think about that. And that's really what Colossians is calling us to. Whatever it is you love, you can fill in the blank. Could that be said about us? That, hey, you love this. You love work. You love your family. You love this hobby. 
You love the idea of security in your bank account. You love those things, but you do you love Jesus more than those things? That is what we should come away with, and that's what we need to ask ourselves in this, this big picture of Colossians. Is Jesus more important than everything else in life? Do we truly see him as supreme, as preeminent, as the one who is worthy of all of our affections, all of our thoughts, all of our pursuits? Are we seeking him and setting our minds upon him? That is we see when we when we take this bird's eye view of Colossians. When we zoom up and, and look at the whole letter and say, wow, this is what Paul is calling the Colossians to. It says, hey, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the one who's created you. You, you are for him. And then the Apostle Paul exalts Christ as supreme and preeminent, and then says, hey, this supreme and preeminent one, you've been united with him. Just think about how amazing that is for a second. That we have been united with Christ. And then think about the implications of that. Paul now says, live your life according to what has taken place in you. These invisible spiritual realities that have taken place, trust that they have taken place. It'd be nice if there was like a stamp on our forehead, like, yes, this is what's happened. Then we can really be sure of it, but we're called to exercise faith. This union with Christ that is spiritual, that is invisible, do you trust that it has taken place? And then are you willing to now live your life in accordance with these spiritual truths that have taken place? This transformation that has already come to pass. We are called to behold the infinite and and worthy Christ and to build our lives upon Him. And you can think of it this way. Do you remember the, the attacks of September 11th? What was it, after the attacks took place, what was everybody glued to? The television. Right? And what was amazing, what was amazing about television at that time is what wasn't on. See, there were no commercials. There were no periphery things. Television shows got canceled so that television stations could, in their entirety, 24-7, do what? Cover what had taken place in the attacks, and then in these search and rescue efforts over the next couple of days. Every periphery matter, every trivial thing in our society at that point in time seemed to just fade away. And people were focused on what mattered most. The the NFL and Major League Baseball canceled their games. Who's going to go and enjoy and be entertained by a baseball game when... When there are others who are searching frantically under tons of rubble for survivors. How can you enjoy a baseball game when that's going on? Politicians drop their squabbles regarding lesser political matters. I mean, who can, who can fight for power in the House or in the Senate when, when we all feel powerless because of what's just happened? Those were some scary days, but it was, it was so unique in history. Because our, our nation seemed to understand what truly mattered. And everything that didn't matter just seemed to fade away. We stopped paying attention to it. We put it aside and we focused on what was truly important in life. And that is what we are called to here in Colossians. To examine our lives and to, and to say, what is it that really, really matters? What should come to the forefront and what should fade to the background? What do, I, what do I need to put off? What do I need to put to death? And what is it I need to begin to pursue? What is it I need to begin to put on? And am I now living my life for Christ? We need to ask that of ourselves as individuals and say, is Christ preeminent in my life? Am I building my life upon what has taken place? That I am now united with Him in a spiritual union that cannot be broken. I am secure and can rest in Him. And now I'm going to live my life not for myself, but for Christ. There's a, a, a famous, famous verse, uh, just somebody came up with, a little rhyme. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This is what Colossians calls us to contemplate 
and then to act upon. May we think about that and, and then begin to build our lives on the preeminent Christ that we have been united with in faith today, tomorrow, this week, and for eternity. Let's pray. Glorious Christ, Lord, we come to you acknowledging that you are exactly who you claim to be, that you are the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the exact image and representation of God the Father. You are the one who has created us, who has given us life. You are the one that we have been created for. You are the one who has reconciled us. You are the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside. And Lord, we are just absolutely humbled and blown away that you would unite yourself to us. Lord, we are sinners. We are undeserving of communion with you. We are undeserving of fellowship with you. And yet you have desired to fellowship with us. You have shown us love, mercy, compassion, grace. And for that we come and thank you. Praise you because you are infinitely worthy of all of our devotion. And not only all of our devotion, but Lord, you are worthy of our lives. Lord, I pray that as a church and as individuals, that we would walk in you just as we received you by faith. That you would help us to guard our hearts and our minds from the deceptive philosophies of the world that seek to take us captive and that you would help us to set our minds and our affections upon you. That we would seek you and that we would think according to you. That we might be instruments in your hands to reach the world around us, to sanctify one another, and ultimately to bring glory to your name. Lord, help us to see and identify all of those things that need to fade away. And may you come to the forefront of our minds, of our hearts, and of our lives. We ask in your precious and magnificent name. Amen.